I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Welcome to Filmstrip, featuring Rod. It'll be my word against yours. And Jay. I got to know. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Sudden Impact, starring Clint Eastwood, Sandra Locke, Pat Hingle, and Paul Drake. Directed by Clint Eastwood, released in 1983 on a budget of $22 million, made over $67 million at the box office. So, seven years since the last film, The Enforcer, which both of us thought didn't work and pretty well just derailed the Dirty Harry series, Clint comes back to this one. And we don't do a lot of IMDb trivia here, we do these shows and stuff, but I did find one thing that I just found fascinating and I had never read before was that the entire reason this exists is because of a Warner Brothers survey. And then people saying they'd love to see Clint Eastwood play Dirty Harry again. And a phone call and a lunch later, there's a movie. A phone call and a lunch and probably $10 million. Probably so. That and I get to direct my girlfriend at the time. Because not to get into the the Inquirer part of of, uh, Hollywood, but the Eastwood lock um, duo is responsible for a lot of things that happened for a while until they turned the guns on each other you mean the eastwood lock power couple <laughs> yeah uh, which is really more like the power guy who when he took it all away ended i mean have you heard of her lately i haven't so so you mean something bad something bad happened to the first celebrity couple to get a portmanteau <laughs> i mean weren't they called east lock i didn't know that but you know what that works i totally buy that so um now, but I th- I think they I mean they, there were lawsuits in the nineties. I think eventually she she settled. They went up settling out of court or something like that. I I don't remember. So yeah, because um the jury I, I do remember now the jury was going to rule in her favor, but before they came back, uh, Eastwood's party came out with the. Uh, with a settlement and then that's the end of that so uh, she is a cancer survivor so i won't i won't give her a hard time too much because good on her for doing that but yeah they uh um yeah sandra Locke and clint eastwood were together for about 14 years there starting in the you know mid 70s so right in the right around the time of uh, the enforcer and then all the way up through 1989 which would have been the last dirty Harry movie so that we'll get to next time but no sudden impact uh you're brought back and uh the thing about this one i think is probably the lasting legacy is the go ahead make my day line right like that's the uh, we, we've talked about the lines of the film right you know the the man's got to know his limitations and you know some of the other things you know this is the most, yeah this is the most powerful handgun in the world and then i don't know what the hell the last line was you know viva la revolution or whatever but uh, this one it was definitely go ahead and make my day and it's we'll talk about it when we get there but the thing that amazes me about that is that that got held on to it it was really a throwaway thing that introduced it yeah, it's it's weird the things that stick with pop culture. I think everybody just assumes that's in the first movie mm-hmm. uh, because that's that's usually where 
when I hear people misquote it, it's always like, this is the most powerful handgun in the world. Did I fire five shots? Did I fire six? Go ahead. Make my day. That's a pretty good Clint impression, by the way. I a golf clap on that. That, Thank that was you. good. I, you know, I do. Yeah, I've, I've heard that so many times. What didn't didn't Ronald Reagan throw that out in a speech at one time? Uh, I think he did. So, <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, <laughs> make my day. Yeah, tear down that wall. <laughs> but, this is the most powerful handgun in the world. <laughs> where's my Jello? But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's jelly beans, David. <laughs> I think he was. I think he was in that. That was in the Land of Confusion uh, video from Genesis. But but I mean, now, now pop culture is just mashed together in a big peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my head as I stare down the barrel of four. And then think about this, but I will say this now. This was the first Dirty Harry movie I ever saw. I saw this on cable. I think I was probably 10 or 11, and I have no idea how I got to watch this, probably because no one was looking. And, and uh, latchkey kids. And um, I, I remember thinking at the time, this was the coolest movie I'd ever seen. Dirty Harry was awesome. The you know, he had the 44 auto mag, which we'll talk about that, the, the semi-automatic handgun. And you know, I just thought this was so neat. I Clearly, I paid zero attention to the subject matter of it. But some years later in college, I bought a VHS of it for like five bucks at Walmart. It was when DVDs had come out and VHSs were just flying off shelves for nothing. And mm-hmm. I, resisting the you know the movement, <laughs> bought a lot of VHS tapes. I was also very poor at the time, so that you know that's what I did. And I remember owning this, and I think I only watched it once. And now having I haven't seen it since. And now having come back to it, you know, over a decade later, I think I know why. This is this is an ugly film. This is tough. It's, it's, well, as I said to you in a text message, I said, it's the worst of 70s sleaze meets the worst of 80s fashion. Mm-hmm. Because this movie could not just, it turned into, it turned into 1983 really quickly in San Francisco. Yeah. Like, like it just looks like a completely different town. It, and it was, I think it was, I really do. I think the, the relic of, the seventies and the sixties and the seventies and everything that had changed in America and particularly in San Francisco really changed the look of this. And, and this one, there were small protests about this. The next one we'll talk about the fact that there, there were major outcries about why are we still making dirty Harry movies in San Francisco? But I, I don't think you're wrong there. The aesthetic feels off and it, you know, again, you talk about the 70s sleaze part of it. We'll get into that and stuff. I think that's a good assessment. This is uh, as sleazy a movie as The Enforcer tried to be. It's sleazier than The Enforcer because it's more successful. Yeah. At, but, at being gross. It's yeah. like it's like, so, it's like Clint Eastwood saw I Spit on Your Grave and it's like – I think we need that in the next Dirty Harry movie. Uh, yeah, either he or Sandra Locke must have been fans of that because I I don't know. And you know the thing is like it says you know the- I, I really I really doubt Sandra Locke was a fan of, of that movie. <laughs> well, now, now Clint. I, I could make the argument that Clint was a big fan of that movie. Well, that's probably true. But, I mean, you've got seasoned screenwriters here. I mean, Charles Pierce wrote The Town That Dreaded Sundown. That's I love that movie. That's a fantastic film. And, you know, always had this sort of southern couture and had worked on a lot of stuff, was friends with Clint. And then, But you had, you had other writers. You had three or four different people working on this. I mean, it, it's hard to tell whose hand is on what. That's because to me it feels like two movies awkwardly like mashed together. 
Yeah, it does. That, I mean, there, there are plot lines sort of all over the place. Yeah. Also, let's not forget Charles Pierce is the guy who did the classic Boggy Creek 2 and the legend continues about a Bigfoot in Arkansas. <laughs> hey, you can't beat a Bigfoot movie in the South in the 70s. <laughs> so, I mean, he he must have used his dirty hairy movie to make uh, his dirty hairy money to make that flick cuz Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I but, mean But he is the one that we can credit the go ahead and make my dayline to. That it was his line. And and he said it was something his dad used to say to him when they would you know push the buttons, so so I was like, well, you know, hey, you, you, you write what you know. So yeah, it's it's definitely another Eastwood crony flick because mm-hmm. some of the other credited writers, um, Earl E. Smith, I think. No, is it either one of them? Let me yeah. take a look. Yeah, Earl Earl Smith. Yeah, yeah, he. Uh, he was a, a crony, mm-hmm. and uh, Joseph Stinson, who's also credited with the screenplay, uh, wrote Heartbreak Ridge for which, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, which is not a bad film. Doesn't necessarily hold up, but it's not a bad film. It's it's watchable in some ways. It's maybe the most gravelly voice Clint's had until he did Gran Torino uh, years later. So, <laughs> which which that's by nature. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think before we get any further, though, you need to give us a plot because I- I'll just tell people now, there's no way we're going to walk through this piece by piece like maybe we did some of the other ones. It doesn't really unfold that way either. So we'll just have to talk about everything that happens. But we- we've set it up enough, Ron. Tell people what Sudden Impact's all about. Sure. After several run-ins with the local crime boss, Dirty Harry Callahan is sent to an- a small oceanside town to investigate a series of brutal shootings which we'll get into later. Harry meets a local artist, Jennifer, who's hiding a dark secret and a 38 revolver in her purse. Jennifer <laughs> yes. and her sister were br- brutally raped a few years previously by a group of men, leaving the sister comatose and Jennifer out for revenge via bullets. <laughs> As Harry investigates the killings and that attack from years ago, he, he learns one of the attackers is is the son of the local police chief, which explains why the cops have done little on the case. Finally, Harry learns that Jennifer is the killer, and when attacked by the leader of the old group again, Harry dispenses his unique brand of justice and frames the killings on the perpetrator, allowing Jennifer to finally be at peace as the credits roll. And they walk off into the boardwalk together, yeah. Um, that, that's a good way to sum it up. Let's start with the opening there, though, with what sets the mood, and what I feel like is the, the weirdest setup to any of these films that we've had. Harry Callahan and the mob are having trouble to the point that they run him off the road, shoot his car up, and he magically disappears to come around the next corner and shoot them all. I, right. Yeah. yeah. Now, at this point, Clint's in his 50s. And and I want to say this. you know, we, we talked about how for a man in his late 30s and in his 40s, he was quite spry. He did a lot of stunts and stuff. Well, those days are not happening right now. He does not look like he wants to move. He looks stiff, and he just is – he looks bored. He very much walks like a guy who's in his mid-50s, mid to late 50s at this point. Uh, he's clearly – all those years of jumping around in his 40s have taken a toll on him. All the all those years he did his own stunts on uh, the first Dirty Harry, uh, you know, and – following movies he he moves like a dude who doesn't have a lot of knee cartilage left 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, and he notice by the way that he just sort of stands and just kind of randomly sort of fires that gun. Like there's nothing to it. He he shoots these guys up, you know, and of course, and, and, you know, I feel like we're being dropped into a story and I'm like, what's, what's happening now? You know, I I think my favorite part of, of his advanced age is the fact that you can literally see the actors waiting for their cue to fall over and be shot Mm because they're waiting for Clint to get into position to shoot them. Exactly. And all of this is happening, we should say, and I don't know why. I felt like this was Milius writing again. We have a courtroom scene where he walks in wearing a pair of gargoyle sunglasses. Ridiculous looking, by the way, <laughs> on, on his face. I, it ripped that off of, I don't know if you saw the Terminator or what, decided to do that. But he he's sitting in the courtroom and you have the atypical, you know, caricature liberal judge that throws out the case because of unlawful search and seizure and another one of Callahan's reckless things and the mob boss gets let loose and or the murderer gets let loose and he has that little run in with the punk in the uh, the uh, what did the in the ga- the elevator way and then all of a sudden he starts getting shot up by the the, the mobsters and it's I don't know it's again it's just sort of these random things happening and I feel what you're saying is that it feels like movie by committee it's like well we gotta we gotta work in some random shooting every 12 minutes it, it's like a the sixth part of a slasher film series it, it's very much like well we gotta have some idea for Dirty Harry we got this movie about mobsters like yeah that's good but we need to work the women's lib angle into it or at <laughs> least some brutality against women. And so, like, well, we got this rape revenge flick left over from 1979 that we never made. Like, oh, it's perfect. Just, you know, Dirty Harry is the glue that's going to hold this together. Nobody cares about the plot as long as he's shooting people and you see some boobs and there's some horrible, brutalizing violence on a couple of women. Exactly. Hey, Sandra, are you cool to shoot a bunch of men in the crotch? Yeah, no problem. Because so, that's what happens. The brutal shootings, as they're described in the plot summary, we'll just get it out now. She blows off the twig and berries and then puts one right the, the brutal. Your the, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the uh, I think they called it the 38 caliber vasectomy. Yes, <laughs> and that is a good way to describe what happens because that's the first killing we see. Actually, I mean, we we should go back. She's making out with some guy in the car that we'll come to find out later was one of the you know rapists, and as she's undoing his pants, presumably for pleasure, she sticks that nickel-plated 38 next to him, pulls the trigger, and then you hear another shot, and we see him. You know the the day later when they're looking at the uh, uh, crime scene, you know, he's one hand on his bloody crotch and then, you know, one right between the eyes. And it's, it's terrible. And immediately you start to feel like, ah, oh, this is going to be a really ugly film, isn't it? This is going to be nasty. Yeah. And not nasty in the good way. No. Like it's nasty in the, the bad way. And then I feel dirty having watched it. But the mm-hmm. one good thing is a lot of these scenes are shot. So, in such dark, poorly lit locations that all you're seeing is like flashes of terrible eighties clothing. And then, yeah. uh, you know, muzzle, muzzle flash. Yeah. Yeah. Can Especially I, in this one. Yeah. Can uh, I say this for a movie that's got the budget? This guy was $22 million in, in the eighties was a lot for a movie like this. And I don't care how much Clint was bringing home of that Buy a, a light and hire a gaffer, man. I mean, it is, yeah. it is horrible. I, it is really awful to watch his it, the, the the poor direction of this because Clint Eastwood is a is an acclaimed and, and is a very effective director. He's directed some fantastic stuff. This may be one of the worst things I've ever seen him shoot. It is awful. 
I, I can only imagine that, like, was this the first thing he shot? I mean... I don't think so. No, no. I, let me go back and look and see what his director's filmography is because I don't have it in front of me. No, the first thing he shot was in 1971. Play Misty for me, which is fantastic. High Plains Drifter, Outlaw Josie Wells. Those movies look great. Yeah, so, so what what happened? I have I, no idea. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, do you it, think he was just so, like, exhausted from trying to wear so many hats that I, it was, like... The direction is where it suffered. Maybe so. I, I think I, I'm going to go back though to something that we both hit already. I don't think the story is good because again, you, the the problem here is if you have Harry Callahan investigating this you know random shooting on of this guy that got his balls blown off, and then that leads him to this small town and the rest of it unfolds. That's fine. The mob subplot is what seems ridiculous because it's the worst contrivance ever to try to get the guy out of town because that's what happens they put him on vacation and he still keeps getting chased around by the mobsters he goes into a hotel restaurant where the guy is having his daughter's wedding or granddaughter's wedding and essentially scares him to death he gives him a heart attack by telling him he's got some kind of confession in his pocket and walks out the the door and you know it's it's one thing after another like he won't go away so they finally just give him an assignment that'll take him out of town so, yeah, that's so, yeah. Uh, I, I, why couldn't you have just pulled him in and said, "Hey, Harry, we want you to go run this one down," and he just goes out of town? That's the other thing. This is the one outside of San Francisco. We, we've never, we hadn't done that with Dirty Harry before. How'd you feel about that? You take your hero, co- it's like taking Murtaugh and Riggs and you know putting them in you know Kansas all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or uh, taking Eddie Murphy out of Detroit and putting him into Los Angeles. Yeah, they did that too. So. Uh, <laughs> Or you know Bruce Willis leaves New York and all of a sudden he's he's in Washington D.C. Or he's in L.A. and he leaves he's in Washington D.C. and Randy Harlan's directing. You know you never know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just he's such an iconic character and he's so associated with that '70s San Francisco. I imagine they had to get him out of town because it looked so wrong for him to be there. Mm-hmm. Like it did not look right for Dirty Harry to be in the '80s. You know, he seemed like a relic of a time gone by. And that's the thing is they don't even talk about that. Of all the things he's done as a police officer that we've witnessed, he's still schlubbing around kind of doing the same stuff. Like, how how is he not the most famous cop? Ever. San Francisco well, ever. Well, he is. They, I mean, they, they they play on that in in the, some of it just because they talk about we want you to have you know you got to be nicer to people and stuff. They'll get into he'll become the Hollywood cop next time. That that's the next movie really. But yeah, I don't know how at this point he's not the most famous police officer because in the let's just think about it in the twelve years of what we've seen of Dirty Harry's career in the filmography, he's killed a notorious serial killer that was plaguing the city. All right. He's taken down a gang of vigilante cops that were while they were murdering uh, criminals, they were you know also endangering a lot of innocents and things. And he's thwarted a terrorist group. You know, now you've got him running around in Podunkville investigating uh you know the the thirty eight caliber vasectomy. It, it just, I know they can't continue to elevate. Yeah, at, at, at a certain point, it's getting ridiculous. You know, he's not going to be able to kill the entire mob. So why bring the mob in at all? If you're going to bring the mob in at all, you have him scaring that old guy to death as like the capper of that movie. You know what I'm saying? Like he needs to shoot his way through the mob, sneak into the the wedding with all this evidence and say, 
here you go, old man, and just slap it down on the table, and the old man has the heart attack and falls over dead. Dirty Harry walks out. And says, you know, well, that's a great – yeah, yeah. yeah, that that would totally work. Or you somehow or another tie this woman into that mob story. Like well, they, they were all capos or something that, that did the, the attack on her and her sister. So if you're going to do that story, you have to tie it together some way. Well, they attempted that, didn't they? Wasn't um, the head uh, – wasn't the lead sleazebag uh, one of the guys uh, – who was trying to kill Dirty Harry in San Francisco? One of the um, just the thugs who got away in the beginning. No, no, that was that was the the mobsters thugs. That's the thing, Mick, the lead slug, basically here is just some random loser, yeah, essentially. Like you talk about how poorly developed Bobby was last time, or whatever the guy's name was, the head of the vigilante group. Th- this guy gets nothing. We see him say despicable things to people to brutalize another woman in a. You did the worst love scene. I, you know what? I take it back. It's that's the worst you know sex scene I've ever seen. It beats the room. So, <laughs> I was gonna say. Yeah, it really, it really does. So you see him do, you see him do these horrible things. Which, by the way, that was supposed to be Ed Harris, by the way, and he said no. Thank goodness for him. He would have never worked again. So yeah, he would have never recovered. I mean, this guy looks like just you know if you if you peruse the local paper of arrests for people like that you know sell meth and and beat people up for you know twenty dollars, that, that would be this guy. I mean, he's just a he's just a random thug, and the whole gang too. Can we talk about that gang? By the way, the thing is a setup. Jennifer and her sister get set up by the you said group of men. There was a woman in there, though she is rather mannish. It's like Stockard Channing's evil twin sister. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and also the most developed of the bad guys. Yeah, oddly enough, uh, she got the most de- developed until she got shot right in the chest, which was yeah, she didn't get it in the in the uh, crotch. She got it in the chest. So, uh, but but the thing I like is that they established that she's an evil lesbian. Is that what she was? I wondered I, that they they kept they kept mentioning that that she was you know not they didn't say the word lesbian they said dyke but hmm. they kept throwing that out there. I see, yet, I, yet I, all I see is her like sexually harassing men. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. Like she she goes after the guy that owns the hardware store now and is the respectable businessman that gets gunned down in his garage. And then the other losers and you know, except for the, the cop's son, which we'll find out about him in a little while. But I don't know. I the, the whole gang though isn't as developed. I think the mob people had more development. Yeah. They 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 for sure did. And they had a legitimate grudge against Dirty Harry. Yeah, like that is a good story. I'm with you. I think I really think this story should have been about Dirty Harry versus the Mafia. They tease that enough, and they do it again here. And why not just do that story? Wouldn't that not have been interesting? I think you could have made a good story out of that. I, I, it would have been better than what we got for sure. Yeah, I, I, the the movie takes such a drastic turn when we we flip back and forth between the Jennifer plot and the mob plot. Because that's the thing that surprised me is how long that dang mob plot went on. It's like a third of the film, <laughs> at least if not half of it. I mean, you know? if you if you all right, say you can't afford to shoot in San Francisco, so you or they say no because we're tired of watching Dirty Harry shoot people through windows and hate Ashbury. That's fine. Have them send Dirty Harry off to cool out in in the small town, and then besiege the town with mobsters and just do like a um, what's that movie uh, with Sylvester uh, with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? He's the old sheriff. Oh, The Last Stand. 
Yeah, just do the last stand or like a do like a get Harry and uh, get Harry and his partner. And if you want to keep his girlfriend, that's fine. Mm-hmm. She she shows up too, and just do like a hold him up in the hotel, do like a Rio Bravo or uh, assault on Precinct Thirteen. Uh, that's what I was thinking. Assault on Precinct Thirteen. And you mentioned partner there. He doesn't have a partner in this movie, and that is a mistake. The Jennifer character should have been his partner. That that would have been a great pickup from the end of the Enforcer. How you know the one thing that worked about that movie was the chemistry he and Tyne Daly had. So if you come back seven years later and you find Harry with this blonde cop that's been his partner for a few years, that uh, I would have bought it. I would have been and, like, yeah, she she looks like she can handle herself. I mean that yeah, that works. Right. And, and not just a few years. A few years with him is like 15 on the street. <laughs> exactly, yeah, because nobody lives long around him. I mean, that that would have been interesting. And so if you have the two of them besieged by the, the mob and you just throw that whole rape story away. Well, and- I don't want to get rid of uh, Horace, though. <laughs> no, I like and- him, too. The guy, the guy that has appeared in all of these movies is some raves, the random thugs and pimps and all kinds of stuff. Now he's a friend. <laughs> Because he brings him a big shotgun and a bulldog. <laughs> yeah, an unnecessary flatulent bulldog. <laughs> yes, I, Which, I have. I, I can only think that Clint just had one of those and said, "I, I got to have my dog in this movie," you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so they just went with it. <laughs> the dog makes twenty five thousand dollars a day. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's why he's only on the. Did the, and do, did the thugs hurt the dog? The dog yeah. that that is annoying. The, the the thugs did hurt the dog. Oh, see, they kill Horace and they hurt the dog. And I, th- I honestly think, though, when that scene comes around, and we're skipping around to it, but that's near the end, he's more pissed that the dog's hurt. <laughs> that's that's, it, that's exactly what it looks like. He comes in, it's like, oh, great, another dead friend. I yeah. couldn't tell if Horace was supposed to have been his partner or what. I, I'd assume that they were partners because they hang out a lot. I, I, um, I and, always and read this, it as he was just another cop in another area that knew him and they were just they were gun buddies because they were you know they're shooting on the range together. That's the we have another scene of that. Yeah. Yeah. So this will take the fingerprints clean off or whatever. Yeah. Let's talk about the 44 auto mag. That's a big change in this thing. You know, Dirty Harry's all about the revolver. The 44 auto mag, the you know, shortly produced because it's too darn expensive. <laughs> A handgun to exist in real life. Um, I I remember the first time I saw this, of course, in this movie. Years later, of course, it's a plot point in Beverly Hills Cop Two. Like mm-hmm. they they basically have the same pieces of dialogue in each movie about the same gun. And I, you know, I look at that now just as you know someone who watches a lot of movies and tries to you know, dissect them a little bit in my deconstructionist ways. As the auto mag is the way to bring Dirty Harry into the eighties. He's now he's going to use a semi-automatic handgun instead of just the revolver. So that that's how we update the Dirty Harry. We give him better armament. Yeah, and it's a California-made gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's it's only natural that. It gets moved into, you know, it becomes if you're going to shoot these movies in California, you may as well use like a California gun. It's chrome. It's got that cool. Um, I don't even know what it's supposed to be on the top. The holes between the barrel and the sight. Yeah, just the, the it's part of the pro, the sight profile of it. Yeah, and it does. I don't think it has a functional variance at all. It's just how it was made. So. No, I mean, it's a cool-looking thing. It's that long barrel. It's, it looks like a cannon, you know, just like his other one. It look, Well, you know what it looks like? It looks like what Megatron used to transform into until Michael Bay got a hold of it. 
I think that's what Megatron did transform into. I, yeah, it was either that or he was the P-38. I don't remember which one. But he, yeah, Megatron would look, but I always equated those two things together because having grown up watching the Transformers and then seeing, you know, what uh, Dirty Harry's got in his hands here, I was like, oh, it's like Megatron, you know, but but it looks it looks modern. It looks cool, right? I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. You know what it made me think of? Mm-hmm. And this is another ref, uh, reflection from my childhood. My dad... Um, when his eyesight was better, used to read a lot of those weird pulp books mm-hmm. uh, with like the executioner, Mac Bolin, Mac Bolin, yeah. uh, Remo Williams. He used to read all that crap. Yeah. And I just remember Mac Bolin or the, the, the executioner guy. That's the executioner, right? Yeah. Anyway, he carried a, he had a 44 auto mag. Mm-hmm. And it was on the cover of every book, him with like the gun, like in the Charlie's Angels pose or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the most distinctive flash of my childhood is seeing all those weird paperback books that I don't even know if they make them anymore. Oh, I, they're still around. I don't know if that character's still going or not, but I, I remember those too. I never read any of them, but I used to be fascinated by those covers because it looked so cool because it was like – Dirty Harry and James Bond and Rambo jammed together in a suave, cool thing. Yeah, and I don't know that that's not what's influencing some of this, too, is the rise of that type of literature. Because this feels like pulp that's being thrown together. This is sort of the seedy stuff you would find in that kind of novel. Except probably not as well written. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, say say what you want to about those assembly line books, mm-hmm. and I've read more than my fair share of them over the course of my life from the Hardy Boys on forward. Mm-hmm. Is that they're there's they're at least consistent of a consistent quality, easy to read. You know, the exact opposite of this, and that this is completely inconsistent and and hard to watch. Yeah, that, that's the thing is if you have a a simple assembly line plot then it flows and it would work. But the problem with this is I, I, I'm more interested in this mob subplot, which gets cut off, and then I, I have to watch the painful stuff of the Jennifer plot, which is awful. I mean, that, then I, I'm not trying to make fun of anything here or light of it either. Sexual assault is a very heinous crime. It's a terrible thing. And what happened to her and her sister is, is an awful thing, but it's, it's not good motivation. For this, like, because it, it puts Dirty Harry in this weird place. It's it's Callahan on the trail of a vigilante again, but this time it's somebody who's a victim of a sexual assault. So how can he not side with her? You know, right? And it, it it's it's the complete antithesis of what they'd established in Magnum Force. Mm-hmm. Why why is it okay for her to do this uh, to get vigilante justice and not okay for? Actual, you know, armed law enforcement officers who have profiled their cases and know who they're killing and, and, and can shoot from beyond point blank range. It, it just seems like it's an inconsistent motivation. And I get that it's a, it's a woman. And I think that would make a difference to someone as old school as, as dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just seems like they, it's, it's like they threw it in for, because they had to pad the film to two hours. Well, I feel like they threw this in for Sandra Locke. They wanted her to be this badass chick that was going to, you know, take revenge for, for all womankind in 1983. Because what is more, what is more, I, I guess, poetic justice than a rape victim who shoots her rapists in the nuts? 
I mean, not to put light on it, but I mean, that's what happens. She guns them down by blowing off their male, you know, genitalia, blowing off their manhood, if you will, and and taking them out, and feels completely justified. It and like it's not, it's not like she snaps and is crazy or she's psychotic. She is purposeful. Like she is plotting every one of these are cases of first degree murder. Yeah, it's completely deliberate and yeah. very well planned in a lot of the cases. I tell you the most uncomfortable, oddly enough, though, was not the the horrible attack scene. It was when they put her in front of her catatonic sister. And that I don't know who that actress was that just sat there with that blank look and you know, she's talking about I've almost got them all and all this stuff. And I'm like, God, this is just awful. Like I had a hard time watching it. Like I really said, I like I don't know how much longer does it have left in it? Because I don't know that I can sit through any more of this. It was uncomfortable. It just it was awful. It was it was ugliness only to to bring about uh, nausea. It's I, I equate it to a lot of what Rob Zombie likes to do. You know, he just never knows when to quit. And this movie feels like that. But it, at least when Rob Zombie does it, it's at least inter- interesting to look at. It can be. It can also be very hard to look at. I, 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 the shower scene in Devil's Rejects is a good example of that. So, which I've only recently watched that movie, and now I wish I'd never had, but, because it had a lot of parts where I felt like I just wanted to turn away and go and look at flowers, you know, or, or something. And this movie did but, the same thing. <laughs> but I I don't know. In, in in this case, it feels less like a deliberate choice and more like a accidental provocation because they weren't thinking. Oh, I don't think they were thinking of it at all. You're and, dead and, on. Yeah, because I, I, I Rob Zombie's at least he's doing this for a reason, and that's because this kind of stuff happened in the seventies, and The Devil's Rejects is his making a seventies movie. Um. It's him trying to make the wild bunch or something like that. That's right. That or uh, this though, I couldn't tell you what the motivation of this is. Uh, again, other than let's just do what the well, uh, you know, the motivation is clearly the test audiences say they want to see another Dirty Harry movie. Huh? Okay. And they you got know? this stuff lying around that they are going to combine together. Yeah, yeah, they really feel like it's just microwaved. You know, you remember the early microwaves? This is about the time they started coming out. You know, they, I mean, they, you literally were passing amounts of radiation through your food that was not healthy. Okay. And that feels like this movie right here. It's just, it's just nasty. And let's talk about the random group of losers that Jennifer kills. Okay. Uh, We've already talked about the, the somewhat uh, reluctant, you know, rapist who turns into a businessman, you know, he, he's loading a gun before she shoots him down. That was a really long, weird scene. We've talked about the possible lesbian. That was really awful. You know, what about the chief's son, the chief of police son? You know, the, his story is the, I guess the tragic part of this, right? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say it's tragic. I mean, it's I supposed mean, to juxtapose him next to what happened to Jennifer's sister. Jennifer's sister goes catatonic because of the attack, and it presumably is that way for years and maybe for the rest of her life. That's and, that's what made me think so strongly of I Spit on Your Grave. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen it? Yes. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they forced like a mentally handicapped guy to attempt to rape a woman. Yeah. And that's what this feels like to me very strongly. Mm-hmm. That's but, why I really think somebody saw I spit on your grave and was like, "Yeah, we need some of that." I, I mean, I really think they did because this well, his story is that he drove himself into like a bridge or something like that and survived the crash, but now was you know damaged and 
and in you know in a wheelchair and you see Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle is one of those character actors that just every time he runs onto something, I I I enjoy him because he can be fun and he can be he can also be ridiculous. You know, Batman movies, but he he can be fun too. Like Maximum Overdrive, he's actually one of the things worth watching in that that terrible Stephen King cocaine binge, but. He is so good in this because he's like, I told you to stay off the crime scene. You know, he's got this. He's like this southern sheriff that wound up in San Francisco somehow. I, I can only imagine Clint was just amused with him. Yeah, <laughs> That's why yeah. it stuck him there. But he he winds up in there. But he, what you find out from him is because he's he's portrayed as such a a horrible person. You know that he, you can't trust because he's you know trying to block Callahan's every effort. And then you realize why it makes him a tragic figure. And so when he gets killed. It's. I mean, Jennifer doesn't even kill him. It's. Uh, it's the Mick guy. Yeah, and his one of his gang who looks like um, who looked disturbingly like a young um, Dennis Franz. Well, you know, he, he kind of did. You're right. I, I actually Mick kind of has a little bit of Dennis Franz in the face. Uh, and I now that does you say that, so that's a really strange uh, coincidence. But Mick is the the leader of this whole bit, right? And he's the one that gets tipped off that, hey, somebody's taking out the old crew. What are we going to do about it? And I think it's the the lesbian lady that calls him and tells him that, right? Yes. And, and so he's like, well, it, it'll just get handled. And so he just shows up to start doing random thuggery, you know, at, at different times. Yeah, I just. He seems to show up when it's convenient for the plot. Uh huh. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's there's any like specific anything for. You know, no real reason for any of this to happen. He's as cardboard cut out as the targets that uh, David Soul and Clint Eastwood were shooting in Magnum Force. <laughs> I mean, he really is. He is uh, not even a caricature. He's just a, a cackling, insane person. Yes, exactly. And he's, he looks like he's sweaty and greasy and, you know. Oh, he doesn't look like he is. Yeah, it stinks of Winston Light. You know, that's a, so, that's a, yeah, that's legit. That's and, a legitimate stink. Yeah. And, and Coors, like you can just smell it coming off of him when he's on the screen and yeah. this all culminates though, because I, I, I yeah. imagine he smells like, uh, an ashtray full of stale beer. Yes. There, there you go. That's, that's a great description. This all culminates after Callahan gets beat up by these guys and his gun gets kicked into the river. He goes back to his, you know, uh, place and his friend is dead. His dog is hurt. He grabs the auto mag. This is the amazing. They ransack his place that he's staying in the hotel room, and they don't think to look in the drawer beside the nightstand where the you know a very expensive rare firearm is. You know. Yeah, they in somehow an, in an so- unlocked box. They somehow missed that 50-pound case. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like a block of wood. It's in there, and they just went right by it. But, of course, it allows him to, you know, Clint to do that cool thing where he's bleeding on his face, and he slams the magazine in, you know, so he can look cool. And we're like, oh, yeah, he's going to get some. And at that point, they've kidnapped Jennifer, and they're going to they're gonna have a little repeat of the, the last time, right? And we go back to the scene of the crime, which is an old boardwalk fairgrounds, right? Which will never let you look at the carousel the same way again. Because all, I, all I could think of was the carousel in um, the Crush. Yeah, exactly. And and actually, this looked so much like the fairgrounds in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where our fair was growing up, that it frightens me. 
I mean, there's there was a roller coaster that looked like that every year. I mean, it was yeah, very awful. So one by one, Clint just shoots people because you know they, you see the man walking down the street that's lit. He's backlit by the light, so but he's in shadow. So he's almost like the angel of death coming. They're armed with automatic weapons and they're just standing there waiting for him to get closer so that his gun is in range. Right. Well, uh, although to be fair, his gun probably has more range than theirs. Probably true, but that makes it even dumber that he's just walking down the middle of the street. It's like, it's like Clint said, "I'm going to do that stuff that I used to do in those westerns when I just walked down the street and shot people because I'm I'm, yeah. fr- I'm freaking tired of this movie and I want to go home." <laughs> and, and, that was and, it. And he was holding the gun sideways so you could see the profile. Yes, of course, because we got to profile the gun. You know, it's like, no, we, we got it. We got to show the gun. Which, fun story, Clint, apparently, the thing would misfire a lot, which is one of the problems with those guns, and he would chuck it in the river <laughs> all the time. So they had a frogman on standby to go pick it up. So to dive down and go find the gun, dry it out, reload it, give it back to Clint. I was like, you don't have another prop gun? I guess not. Those guns are pretty expensive, so so maybe not. But yeah, it all comes down, though, to Nick holding Jennifer with his shotgun. We get the repeat of the go ahead and make my day line, you know, punk. And and Nick's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And Jennifer headbutt seemed to give the clearance so Clint can shoot him four times. And then he has to fall through a unicorn on the carousel, right? Because he has to die in some overly elaborate way. Yeah, he shot four times. He falls through the roof, I guess. Yeah. And somehow is able to land perfectly on a yeah a unicorn in the carousel. See, this is this is the ridiculous part of this because the first time he shot Scorpio once in the chest and it blew him off the dock as it would have into the water and he died. Okay, the mm-hmm. the second time he ran guys off of uh, the you know pier of the old aircraft carrier and he karate chopped some dude to death and you know he ran over somebody. He didn't even shoot anybody the second time, right? Right. Then last time he shot somebody with a rocket. So now you're telling me he can hit this guy with four of those or even three, whatever. He can hit that guy multiple times with those and it doesn't blow him off of the one shot. Doesn't blow him off the damn roller coaster. That just seemed again, like overindulgence for overindulgence sake. Oh, but also we, we had to hear the electricity crackle so that we knew he also got electrocuted by those lights. Yeah. Cause not only is it enough for his in, internal organs to be disintegrated by those bullets essentially, but he's also being electrocuted and he gets impaled. Cause I, I, well, you know, I guess there's, there's supposed to be some kind of irony in that, that the rapist gets impaled in the end. But uh, let me ask you this though, because of how they had set it up so much, were you a little mad that dirty Harry had to come in and killed Jennifer's ultimate nemesis that she didn't get to shoot him. Yeah. A little bit. I think, I think that would have been a, well, not a fun, there was nothing fun about this. Movie. No, uh, I think it would have been a, a, a bit, a better ending at least. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, she's already killed like five people. Why, why would she need dirty Harry's help to kill this guy too? Right. Like she, she actually got away from him herself. Uh, yeah, I guess it's because it was, Three or four yeah. on one at that point, and she needed a little extra help. But it does seem to undermine whatever plot they're trying to drive with her is that you know she can she's going to take her own revenge. That well, Dirty Harry has to come in and, and give the assist at the end. You know, I mean that that's kind of like 
I don't know. I always feel like that. that's how Michael Jordan feels about whatever championship it was that uh, Steve Kerr hit the shot for. You know, <laughs> so it's like, that was not as important. You know, so, I mean, really, I mean, kind of, it's all like, well, I think, but, but, you know, he does hear the solid at the end. Like, I think you'll find that the, because the guy did steal her gun and had it in his pants when he got shot. So I think you'll find that that gun matches all the ballistics and, uh, you know, never mind that he had no reason at all to kill all these people, but whatever. So, you know, oh, yeah, well, we're just going to tidy that up since the police chief's dead now. Well, so, I mean, did, did you did you look at that guy? Does he look like he needs a reason to kill people? <laughs> no, he doesn't. But I'm just saying it's like, does he just <laughs> that's the thing that kills me, because remember how good we, we complimented the fact that Dirty Harry actually did real police work at one time in these movies. And yeah. now it's every cliche that will be. And that's the funny thing. This is the early part of the 80s. So every cop movie of the 80s copies this crap. And it's, it drives me bonkers. Hey, Pat Hangel doesn't need no ballistics reports. <laughs> well, he might need for the one for the slug that killed him. I don't know. So, but well, I think we've we've put enough rounds in this one. Let's go ahead and do the uh, the ending because that's just what we do. Final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for Sudden Impact. Oh boy, uh, <laughs> I gotta go with a small popcorn. Uh, it, it's bad, but not in a fun way. Um, it, it it's a dirty hairy movie that really doesn't need dirty hairy or it's uh, a dirty hairy movie that doesn't really need a, a rape and revenge flick to break out in the middle of it uh, they they tried to combine the two hot things of 1983 the feminist revenge fantasy and the uh, you know cop vigilante thing and it just is a spectacular failure um, and, a, and a waste of Pat Hangel. Uh, although he is good in his limited part, I, I do like his bluster. Uh, Clint Eastwood is clearly in Cash a Check, Robert De Niro uh, in the 2000s uh, mode. And it, the whole thing just doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't work in an unpleasant way. I'm going to join you in the small popcorn. This is such a huge disappointment. And I'll give you two things that really let you know how big of a disappointment it was, or one thing that get, lets you know how huge of a disappointment it was. If you've ever seen the movie Tightrope, which is not a Dirty Harry film, it came out a year after this, it would have been a much better Dirty Harry. This is such an ugly, awful thing to just sit through. It's not fun at all. And none of the stuff that made the character work before is here. It's, it's just random pieces of thuggery and shooting strung together to try to cash in on something that audiences said they wanted. And, you know, it made money, sure, because I think people generally wanted to see another Dirty Harry movie. But it, you know, it didn't, it doesn't hold up and it doesn't work well at all, particularly having watched these in sequence now. I'd say The Enforcer is even more, is at least sort of fun to watch because it's kind of cheesy, mm-hmm. you know, than this. But this is nowhere near nowhere near dirty Harry and Magnum force, not even close. This is an abject failure. And I can see why they, you know, never didn't come back to this again for another five years, because this is an awful thing to, to, to go on. If this had been the last dirty Harry film would have really been a shame because this is such a dour way to end something like this. Well, if this was the last dirty Harry movie, it would have made sense because this would have officially killed the dirty Harry franchise. Well, yeah, but, but somehow they brought him back for a fifth movie. Yeah, I guess 
I guess they decided that, you know, the world needed a 58-year-old action hero before <laughs> Liam Neeson came along. I guess so. And it's so funny because Liam is in that film. But we'll get there next time. So uh, we're going we're gonna to have some real fun with the Deadpool, I think. But, yeah, Sudden Impact is, uh, it, no, <laughs> bad. Don't. Don't do it. Just just turn the other way, folks. Uh, we both agree on that. Small popcorn and and move on from it folks thanks for joining us on this latest episode of film strip you can find more episodes on our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies leave us a review on itunes hook up with us on facebook and twitter let us know what you think and hey drop us a suggestion and you know, people have been doing that on the facebook page lately if you got an idea of something you want us to review throw it out there you never know i mean somebody threw it out on twitter to, to us to do house of the devil and we squeezed that one in last october in the middle of all that halloween stuff so if something uh, strikes our fancy we may give it a run so until next time ron i'm jay thanks for listening to film strip thank you for listening to film strip all content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is a property of their respective owners and used under the fair use act section 504c2 title 17 